everyone. Today is November 2nd. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Um, our guest today is Aurelio Gali. Hi, Aurelio. Hi. Uh, he's professor of molecular physiology and biophysics at Vanderbilt University, where he also is associate director of the Brain Institute. His lab is determining the mechanisms and modulators of, um, well, it's doing many things, but what we're going to talk about today is what I'm going to say that you're doing, which is <laughs> Um, determining the mechanisms and modulators of dopamine transporter function in, um, in both a biophysical sense as well as in the domain of behavior, which, um, which is really cool because you're using Drosophila as a model to, for autism, of all things. That's pretty incredible. His work is, uh, is, is clinically inclined and he t it touches on all manner of neurological disorders like PD or you know, Parkinson's disease. Uh, for those not in the know, right? Um, ADHD, pathological behaviors like feeding, um, overeating, and then, uh, like I mentioned, autism. So around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Matt Wannett. Howdy. And Carlos Palladini. Hello. It's the usual crew. Okay, so uh, you've done many studies, biophysical and other types of studies, uh, that point to mechanisms of dopamine transporters can you just introduce our, our listeners before we get into a more deeper discussion to the dopamine transporter specifically? Uh, and then I'm hoping we start talking about some other transporters, but I, I don't know if we'll get there. Um, and then some of the biophysical peculiarities of its structure, um, energetics, and modalities of operation. So it's a very interesting uh, protein. Uh, it's uh, controlling the extracellular level of dopamine. And it's very interesting because uh, it's a, a target of uh, common psychostimulants, such as amphetamine and cocaine, that with different modalities are capable to increase uh, the level of extracellular dopamine. And so the lab uh, using, is using different techniques to understand how this is happening and uh, what kind of specific behavior uh, these uh, drugs are able to cause in different animal models. So we develop uh, um, animal model both in Drosophila, C. elegans, and uh, also mice uh, to study the different aspect of uh, uh, this uh, drug of abuse. So how does how do the transporters actually work physically? So if dopamine has to be, for the most part, they work as an uptake mechanism from dopamine outside the cell into the cell, which means that it's, for the most part, going bringing dopamine in against its concentration gradient. Is that correct? Yeah, it is correct. So is, that is the physiological role of the transporter, and uh, that is what it does normally, right? So it, it clears dopamine from the outside the neuron in the brain, uh, brings dopamine back into the neuron. Um, however, uh, as you heard today, you know, under pathophysiological condition, either with amphetamine or with cocaine, things are changing and now either the transporter doesn't work well anymore properly as you say or uh, it gets modified in such a way that it can move dopamine from the inside the neuron to the outside the neuron and so that is what is causing a lot of uh, the liability with amphetamine and cocaine and also the uh, specific behavior right of this uh, of these drugs so so how does actually dopamine get forced against this concentration gradient. So how is that different? How is a transporter different from, so if an ion channel just opens a pore and then ions flow th along their concentration gradient for the most part. Um, but because dopamine has to go against its concentration gradient, something has to either 
push it against this concentration gradient or facilitate somehow so that it gets moved into the cell. So the traditional view, so these are called co-transporters, and when I say this meaning the serotonin transporter that is important for depression, or epinephrine transporter and the dopamine transporter, use the electrochemical gradient of other ions, right? uh, like sodium, for example, to accumulate dopamine right, uh, inside the neuron against its own concentration gradient. This is the uh, traditional view, but th this view has been changing over, uh, over the years because transporter can also work si like ion channels, right? And, uh, and it's not only the dopamine transporter, you're going to see this in the glutamate transporter too, right? And uh, when they're acting like an ion channel, the energetic is just a little different, right? And there are different models to explain how they can concentrate against electrochemical gradients. Um, there is, uh, but majorly is the, the energetic of the voltage, and again the ions, and they can push the fast moving of dopamine inside the cell. Can so I, is, can it, is it? Sorry, oh. can I? Can I? Yes, go ahead. Does it actually bind dopamine, and then, uh, and then translocate itself with the dopamine, and let go, or is it opening us? hole in the membrane for the dopamine to go through? No, I mean also for there are different models, but you know, the, the model that uh, people like the most in the field is the two gates model, when one gate open and allows dopamine and sodium, chloride too, to bind inside the pore, and then one of the gate close and the other one open and release ah. everything inside. It's not the classic. It's like an airlock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's like if you put multiple gates on, a, on an ion channel that are not opening all at the same time, but it's called alternating access. So it's alternating the access of this ion and dopamine into the pore in order to move this. So the dopamine actually binds to something when the first gate opens? Yes, it binds into the pore. So it has an actual binding site? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And this binding site can compete for cocaine, yeah. uh, amphetamine can share it, that is why amphetamine is, is a substrate, right, of the dopamine transport. Right, yeah. The structure of amphetamine is very, very similar uh, to dopamine, right? And so they, they can share this. So then a part of the things you were talking about today was uh, to use uh, a line from your slide that uh, dopamine transporter doesn't just suck. Um, it also, you know, spits out, you know, dopamine as well. It works in reverse. And so how does the mechanisms differ between sort of the, the canonical sort of reuptake versus the efflux of dopamine. I think that I, I want to go just a little more sp uh, specific with keeping always general. And what mm -hmm. is the difference between amphetamine and dopamine? Mm -hmm. right? They are both substrate of the transporter, right? and uh, they both share probably binding sites, although it's still not totally clear. Um, and, and the difference is that one, uh, and there are different theories, but the amphetamine is a weak base that can really break the proton gradient in the, in the, in the vesicle where dopamine is accumulated, right? And then mm -hmm. dopamine is now released into the cytoplasm, and so that is how you, of the neuron, that is how you raise intracellular dopamine concentration. Now, by the way, it's not that low, it's still in the micromolar range, even under normal conditions. And, uh, and so when that is happening, and because of all the other modification that amphetamine can cause to the transporter, now you have, the transporter has the ability to have access to all this intracellular dopamine and move the dopamine outside the cell. So this is what I've been trying to interject with, because it's, this is not intuitive to me. So there's, uh, there's actually an internal concentration of unsequestered dopamine that just hangs around, because my sense was that it 
it gets packaged and it's there, there's sort of a, a machinery that deals with it, but there's an ambient sort of intracellular. Yeah, it's in the micromolar range. There, are, there is a, a beautiful work from uh, David Solzer at Columbia University that in the old days showed that the actually, old, I shouldn't say the old days, a few years ago, <laughs> uh, showed that uh, um, in these days, a few years ago is old, uh, but showed that the concentration is in micromolar range. And when you add amphetamine, it can go in the eye. Uh, micromolar. But you know, the concentration of uh, dopamine in a, in a chromaffin granule is in the molar, right? And so you can imagine that if you release that amount, even in the cytoplasm, you can raise the concentration quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We're talking about amphetamine. It, it causes the efflux of dopamine um, because it phosphorylates <clears throat> the N-terminus of the uh, protein of the um, of the dopamine transporter, why is the dopamine transporter even capable of effluxing dopamine? So there, it, it shouldn't, and so the mechanism should be that it's only reuptaking dopamine, right? So what, what amphetamine does, and probably what particular physiological uh, situation do, is unstabilize the transport, right? And let's start with amphetamine. So what, what, what it does is that it's hijacking a, a mechanism that is being conserved by evolution, right? You don't have anything in a protein that is conserved for so many years and across species if physiologically does not have a relevance. Now, if we understand what does it mean, it would be important, but we don't, right? So, yeah, so by that argument, you're saying that there's this mechanism on the terminus that can be phosphorylated, right? Which is a very common way to make channels and proteins change their shape. Sure. Um, and so, if it's so well conserved, then there must be a reason why it's there. I agree. And the reason is probably not to bind to amphetamine. Absolutely. So what is the, the, the physiological reason why uh, dopamine transporters can be phosphorylated at all and therefore change their function? So the, we, we don't know, right? So yeah. the bottom line is we don't know. And the, it, but I think that it is, uh, is being utilized, again, across species to increase uh, tonic level of dopamine, right? So synaptic release increase neurotransmitter massively, and instead, you know, this mechanism will increase uh, level of extracellular neurotransmitter to a sort of level, right? And I think it is actually is a very important mechanism, and I think that we are now prepared uh, to study it, like all these flies that are not responding to amphetamine, or all these animal models that are not responding to amphetamine, because the transporter cannot reverse anymore. Can be studied now in a situation under stress, uh, with a predator, uh, with social interaction, to see really what this is changing. And we still don't have an answer. I mean, we just study these experiments. So that's cool. So what you're saying is that if, if the dopamine transporter cannot do efflux, yes. then you end up with certain diseases. Yes. So, so there, is, there has to be a physiological reason for I, it. I, I, uh, I am uh, uh, absolutely agree with you. And, okay. uh, it's, you, know, it's, you know, for years we couldn't do it because we could not manipulate the transporter in such a way that as normal reuptake of dopamine, so normal clearance of extracellular dopamine, without being capable of efflux. And now we do have these animal models, right? Uh, and we can approach, of course, the problem in a completely different way. Right? So, 
You touched on this in your talk about you know one of the problems of the fact that there is no pharmacotherapy for treating psychostimulants that's out there, and I guess by sort of highlighting you know at least in the context of you know amphetamines, is there a, sort of any strategies of potentially you know virally upregulates anybody done preclinical studies to try and overexpress these. Um, these dopamine transporters in animals that might already have sort of experience consuming amphetamines. And if you put in this sort of messed up, this modified dopamine transporter, can you now make it so the animals don't find it efficacious anymore and so they're no longer you know, reinforced when they're self-administering drugs? And is this sort of a, a potential avenue that you know, people are looking at for treating psychostimulant uh, substance abuse? So we look at this in, a, in just a little different way. So we use a a lot of the therapies that are used to carve uh, high-fed feeding and uh, or uh, um, high-sucrose feeding, so uh, high-caloric feeding, and we translate this uh, to animal model to study, in this case, cocaine. Amphetamine is just a little different. Uh, cocaine is a block of the dopamine transport, and so uh, the, uh, one of the theory around that is being supported by human studies and animal model is that if you have a lot of dopamine transporter, on the plasma membrane, you can in some way counteract the uh, ability of cocaine to raise extracellular dopamine level. So we use a lot of uh, uh, these drugs that are on the market to treat type 2 diabetes, but we know that are changing food preference in this, uh, in this patient. Uh, one is, uh, is, uh, out, is called Exenadide 4, it's actually from the saliva of the Gila monster, it's been on the market from, uh, from Bayetta. <laughs> Uh, there is another one, it's called liraglutide, has been uh, on the market from Novo Nortis. And all these we, we have shown and actually can change uh, surface uh, level of the dopamine transport. So we can increase the number of transporters on the plasma membrane, and we use it, uh, in particular EX4, so exanadide, um, is a billion dollar market, by the way, to treat type, type 2 diabetes. We show that it is impairing uh, self-administration of cocaine, that is impairing condition place preference or reward for cocaine. Uh, we figured out at least one of the possible mechanisms that is uh, uh, arachidonic acid uh, and 2-AG in the lateral septum. So we are using a, in a, an approach to uh, using medication that is being used for other pathophysiology of the reward system now to target uh, mechanistically the dopamine transporter in, uh, in brain, at least for cocaine. Amphetamine is just a little more complicated because if you put too many transporters on the plasma membrane, amphetamine will work actually much better. Even better. So, <laughs> even better. So you have to be careful. Or worse, depending. Yeah. So I want to back up again with another basic question. Yes. Um, so the, the range of modulation of, of dopamine concentration at the synapse that is handled by the dopamine transporter, is that overlapping or how does it interact with the D2 or the autoreceptor mechanisms for modulating um, uh, dopamine neuron activity? And is there, is there an overlap? So the, at the synapse, nobody knows the concentration, right? Because we never put an electrode between uh, two neurons, right? Nobody can ever figure it out that. So there are modeling, right, that it tells you that are going in the high uh, millimolar range, right? Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and so the, the dopamine receptors, some of them are at least are pre and postsynaptic, right? We saw, and I tried to uh, figure it out if I'm answering your question correctly, we, f we saw some interaction between the D2 presynaptic receptor and the dopamine transporter. In fact, one of these 
uh, autistic mutant in the dopamine transporter utilizes actually a little leak to stimulate D2 receptor, right? And then increase this constant leak of dopamine, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, these are data that I didn't show today because otherwise I, I probably lose the audience. It was too much stuff all in together, right? And so I was trying to be linear. That is what I'm saying. And so there are a lot of interaction is, uh, I don't think that anybody knows how changing uh, intersynaptic concentration of dopamine is affecting either the transporter or the receptor because nobody of us can ever measure that, right, in uh, in an accurate way. So there have been some studies, at least for glutamate transporters, where people measure that by being able to measure the uh, extrasynaptic receptors. Sure. So get a pretty good, at least, estimation of the amount of glutamate that's controlled by transporters. Is there no such parallel with dopamine transporters and, and, and dopamine concentration? No, because I think that it's been done in, uh, in different ways. Right? You know, you're probably referring to the sniffer patch clamp. This was uh, yeah. David Atwell. Mm -hmm. And so they were using a methodology that uh, are different. Right? They were using the ability of this uh, neurotransmitter to open a ion channel and measure robust electrical current very close to the synapse, yeah. sniffing with a patch of membrane that they were getting from, uh, from other neurons, right? And uh, with the dopamine transporter, is, with dopamine, it's very, it's very difficult to do that, right? We, we, we don't have uh, a strong ion channel that is uh, related directly, right, to the binding of dopamine, right? So there's a uh, uh, Fiorillo, no, not Fiorillo, um, Ford, another F, Chris Ford. Yeah, Ford. He has some, some D2 that's, now, that's coupled with a GERC channel so that he can actually measure um, a, an actual current when, when dopamine binds to D2. Sure. Do you, so maybe you, it's possible now. I don't yeah, know no, sure. You can, you, can do sniffer, you can do sniffer patch clamp right? yeah. close, to the, close to the synapse. But remember, they're all uh, indirect measurements of what really is happening into the synapse, right? Yeah. You cannot really go in, right? You're always, like you said, you, you was the you use the word extrasynaptic, right? Because yeah. it's very, it's impossible to go into the synapse, right? Yeah. And the other thing that I think that is differentiating the glutamate transport from the dopamine transporter is that a glutamate is something that has to be clear extremely fast, right? It's extremely toxic, uh, you know, it's binding to all these uh, ionotropic uh, 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 protein. And so the glutamate transporter most of the time are acting like buffer. You know, glutamine mm -hmm. is released and it gets buffered, right? It gets yeah. bound. The transporter is a secondary mecha mechanism to clear it up. I think that the dopamine transporter is just a little different uh, in, in that respect, right? So there is a clear, you know, the clear, uh, the, the activity of the transporter is, is extremely important mm -hmm. for the clearance in addition to the buffering of it. Okay. Uh, because fact, I think there's, no, there's no other, sorry? There's no other way to take up dopamine yeah. other than the dopamine Transport. transporter. So what happens when the dopamine transporter is blocked? Does that mean the tissue just gets cumulatively flooded with dopamine? There are enzymes, I guess, in yeah. the extracellular space. Yeah, there are the enzymes that metabolize dopamine, right? It's actually a problem. So at that point, everything just becomes an equilibrium with those enzymes. Yeah, and so, but you know, the, the <coughs> the system is is really controlled, right? And so, if you even if you uh, ablate the dopamine transporter, like if you do a knockout, right, you will have uh, you will have less synthesis, right, of uh, of the dopamine in the neuron. Neuron, and actually, you have a high level of extracellular mm -hmm. dopamine, but much less 
uh, dopamine within within the neuron because the, you're lacking the reuptake of it, right? Yeah, it is absolutely with, um, essential. With glutamate as well, so yeah. the, the glutamate glutamine pathway. Sure, but you go bypass in a different you, you neuron. Bypass, yeah. So that's, yeah, you you you, so buy, you use a other neuron to convert and brings right. the glutamine back yeah, to the, the primary neuron. The point is the same, right? Yeah. There isn't this infinite source of this transmitter that just keeps accumulating in the extracellular space because it has to, like you said, it has, yeah. to, be it has to be synthesized. And if it's not being uh, reuptaked or brought in so that it can be repackaged and then re-released, then Absolutely. you'll reach some equilibrium that's different than the equilibrium that the transport itself was trying to maintain. Sure. But it's not as if it just keeps accumulating, right? No, you, but you know there are serious pathologies. Yeah, of course, of course. So that, that equilibrium yeah. has yeah. to be the correct one. Yeah, that's <laughs> the correct one because if it's uh, too high, or too low, you you have uh, you have problems. You know, some of the uh, mutation in the dopamine transporter, particularly for uh, homozygotes, that are uh, family. Uh, I believe that are from Pakistan, in England. Uh, so the kids die very early with a very early sign of uh, Parkinson, right? A lot of tremor and, and so on. And that due to the fact that the transport doesn't work properly, we're working, we actually generated the first fly with one of these uh, mutants uh, right now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use the high-speed camera to see if we can discover any tremor uh, in the flies. Actually, we have two, one for Copenhagen, for a group in Copenhagen, one that uh, we just did from, uh, from a kid uh, and uh, the mutation is from a kid. So the, the flies actually have tremors? Uh, well, well, I'm pretty sure they will. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, they, they have, uh, I didn't show some of this, the, the things that they do, is actually are, uh, they even a startle response that is pretty amazing. Yeah. The startle response is that when they get scared, right, they push the wing towards the floor and they're ready to take off and they can't because of course they're trapped in these little cages, right? And so you can measure startle response uh, I'm pretty sure you can measure tremor, and you can do a lot of these things. You have to have just the right camera; otherwise, you will never you will never notice it with a regular camera. Sort of to move on to that aspect, there you were sort of presenting some really awesome data about like how you could actually look at social behavior in flies. And I was wondering if you could sort of comment on how you're actually able to sort of look at that in a laboratory setting. Well, yeah, first we have to have the amount of money to buy the camera. And that is why sometimes people change institution. Because um, <laughs> you need some extra, some extra money. Some extra stuff, yeah. The cameras are very expensive. They cost between one fifty and two hundred thousand dollars. Just the camera, right? And uh, you need a lot of lights. So usually you use uh, to use LED lights, and the things that are costly, but are pretty costly too. Because if you try to, this camera needs a lot of lights in order because it goes so fast, right? And so if you use the regular lights, you're going to burn the flies. That is exactly what we did in the beginning. <laughs> um, and uh, flies are okay, right? So it's, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> and uh, so, we, so now we, have, uh, so we bought all this equipment, right? And uh, then you have to discover behaviors, right? And uh, because they have to be the appropriate behavior, right? And uh, it's, it's amazing how when you look at this video and you slow a fly uh, behavior, how you notice things that were completely unexpected, right? You know, I shouldn't be surprised as an electrophysiologist, uh, but the need for speed when it comes to behavior is really, <laughs> is really unique. So you just need a lot of speed. So the social behavior, yeah. so uh, is measured by like flying together or, yeah. or something like that? No, we have done it in a different way. I only show that. So I only show 
the complex uh, behavior that is maintaining a sort of amount of distance with the, the other animal within the flock. Right? That is not that different from us. Look around the table. We don't pack all together, right? So we maintain distances, right? So distances is, uh, is very important, right? And that is what we measure under stress or under normal behavior. There will be one, right? And the other one, we really try to look how flies socialize. We build particular cages uh, where we trap, quote unquote, freely moving a fly on one side of the cage. And we look how either an autistic mutant or a regular uh, fly how much time they spend interacting with the fly that is trapped, right? And so we, we are doing all this. But, you know, we had to engineer all the cages uh, because you cannot buy them, and we have to do all this kind of thing. So it took some, quite a bit of so time. So a, a fly is not a mammal. No. Um, if a fly approaches another fly, is that th the same reason why a mouse would approach another mouse? No, I think that there are different... There are different reasons. Uh, some of the reasons are maintained across uh, phyla. Mm -hmm. So reproduction is one of them. So the flies have to encounter each other in order to, <laughs> to reproduce. Right? And uh, so we are gaining on this kind of mechanism that are maintained. Right? Otherwise, the species will disappear. Yeah. So that is one. I, I don't think that we can extrapolate such a complex behavior, probably what you are, you are saying that we can see in, in, in mice, but the, the most primordial behavior that are reproduction, feeding, how they socialize in order to reproduce and, and or in order to escape from a predator, I think that are Yeah, and yeah. I mean, let's give credit here. These are like single um, amino acid deletions yeah. that are producing these. Yeah. Yeah. These huge behavioral effects, it's, that's pretty amazing. So it gets sort of philosophical on this, but do you think it's more sensory or is it more complicated? You know, I mean, since we're moving down to sort of, you know, the fly here, is it just solely a sensory impairment where the animals aren't able to sort of recognize the appropriate distance? Or is it sort of, I, I, I mean, could we actually sort of think of, you know, autism as something is just simply just being, or on the autism spectrum disorder, is just sort of being a disruption of, you know, it's sensory stuck. input? Yeah. So there was a, a let, let, me, let me, so first of all, I don't know when it comes to the flies, right? But there was a, a I think a profound article in, a, from a, a collaborator at Vanderbilt, uh, collaborator on a different project, not on this article that I tried to describe, that uh, he was measuring actually the ability to integrate, right, uh, particular perception around individual with autism or without, uh, without autism, kids, right? Within the 50, if I remember correctly, it was 50 millisecond time frame, right? And that was a lack of that integration, right? And so you're right perfectly that the cues that we receive from the environment, they have to be integrated and, and they have to be integrated with the appropriate temporal resolution. If you don't have the appropriate temporal resolution, that is not going to happen in the right way, right? And so, I do agree with you. It can be, it can be how we integrate these uh, cues all around us that makes a difference sometimes in uh, a neuropsychiatric disorder. I don't have an answer on the flies. I know that they can hear very well because they tend to freeze when I scare them. But so, what is the, the anatomical, uh, I mean, do they have a striatum? I mean, I, I don't know anything No, about they, they, the brain is much more simple. 
then uh, a, a mouse brain, of course, right? But the mouse brain is much more simple than the human brain, and it still is a very valid model. I think it is like how you extrapolate the behavior that you're studying is, is very, very important, right? So if you're using the fly as a good screening to see if there is any impairment in social interaction, any impairment in a particular type of medication, difference in locomotion, and then you try to translate this to mice, I think it's actually very, very important. Mm -hmm. If you try to discover new genes that are involved in the pathophysiology uh, of a neuropsychiatric disorder, I think that is very, very important. I think we have to, uh, to really solidify this view that is a very useful animal model, right? That it can be used in the appropriate way to have the appropriate discovery, but we have to be careful how much we extrapolate out of that. They don't have a straight, I mean, that is what you're saying. <laughs> so one of the things about autism is that it has these multiple dimensions. That's why they call it a spectrum yeah. disorder. And the, um, like hyperactivity, which you could sort of connect up to dopamine sure. relatively easily. Sure. And the social isolation, which we tend not to connect up to dopamine quite so easily. But it looks like, uh, in the flies anyway, that these mutations that affect just dopamine transporters are affecting multiple dimensions of the spectrum of fly uh, autism. If, if, you know, sure. if, if so the, the fly the, the circuitry are much more simple, right? And the, they're very simple circuitry in, in the flies. So you, if you perturb one of the keynotes, right, of, uh, uh, of this circuitry, in this case it's a dopamine transporter, you can imagine that you are going to affect a lot of different things. You know, we, they didn't evolve as a human being where there is much more complexity, right? We have a lot of rebounding circuitry that are very important to control our behavior, right? You don't want if something goes wrong in, 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 a, in a little molecule that the entire brain goes off, right? And so, but, but I think that it's still very valuable in, in, in But do you think there's, I was thinking about it a slightly different way, I was thinking, yeah. well maybe that gives us some hope that the dimensions of autism are actually closely related to each other, and that if you could find some, you know, s single target could actually help along multiple dimensions. Yeah, so I think that there is a problem uh, with, the, with the animal model that we use, um, for, for different reasons, we express uh, a single gene, right? They will be probably considered like homozygous, right? Instead, that, you know, all these mutants in the dopamine transporter are heterozygous, right? So the, these kids have one allele that is mutated, right? And so they have a lot of, the system is also controlled from the other allele that works normally, right? They, that is not what we have in flies because what we're trying to do is to push the system. Right? We want to see a robust perturbation instead of a very light perturbation. So what happened to the fly's own dopamine yeah, transporter? Yeah, exactly. That's my question. I mean, the fl doesn't the fly still have their native dopamine no, transporter? No, we delete that. Oh, I see. We delete, you know, we delete the dopamine transporter that is native. So it's just only the, got the one that you Only the human dopamine right. transporter. In the entire the colony. Human, and the, then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I see. Or the dopamine transporter that has been muted. We, we don't want any interference. We just want to uh, have a clear, clear scene. So, so in the, sorry, in the, uh, just uh, pursuing this, in the humans that have these mutations that affect dopamine transporters, yes. do, do they have multi-spectrum 
symptoms, or are they strictly hyperactive or strictly socially isolated? The, 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 you know, the, the, they are different depending on the mutation that they have. And, you know, they, I, I just want to point that the translation to autism is not direct, right? So meaning that these are very rare mutations, and is a, a, autism is a very complex disease. So you can, we cannot attribute the mutation, the disease, to that specific mutation, right? What we are looking at are dysfunctional in the dopaminergic system in our animal model when we have that particular mutation, right? I, 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 I try to be clear on that, otherwise the geneticist will uh, aid me forever. Uh, so these are very rare mutations with a very interesting uh, biological output. That is what we are studying right now. Do you see any other sort of developmental abnormalities in the flies? I mean, so, I mean, humans, obviously, there's no overt developmental, but clearly there seems to be some evidence of some developmental, you know, issues with sort of autism spectrum disorder. Sure. How does that sort of map on between sort of the two and, yeah? We don't have an answer in the flies because we didn't check for that, but we will have an answer on the mouse that came ready, ready probably four months ago. Uh, the behavior are absolutely spectacular. So we have heterozygous and we have also so uh, one allele, homozygous, both allele. And uh, so we have impaired social interaction. Uh, we have hyperactivity, extremely high level of hyperactivity. I got a, a particular drug from a, a friend of mine in Baltimore that is a biotech that only works on the dopamine transporter. So it does not work on the serotonin and norepinephrine transporter. I don't even know the structure of these drugs because it's super secretive, but I know it works on a dopamine transporter because I tested it. And uh, we are testing it as we talk on these mice to try to see if we rescue right, a normal behavior. This is one of the leakers, so the, a, a transporter that keeps leaking dopamine out. And the heterozygous as a phenotype is not as robust as the homozygous, right? So, uh, but uh, it, very interesting behavior. We've done... Uh, uh, amperometry uh, in brain, we've done uh, behavior, uh, we have done all the biochemistry that uh, we know how to do and we are keeping going in that, in that respect and we are going to look, of course, uh, different type of neurodevelopmental uh, impairments. So is there any um, genetic or organic connection between ADHD as it's described in the clinic and anything to do with the dopamine transport or is that just inferred based on this, the constellation of well, in a lot of uh, these diseases are comorbid. There are a lot of kids with autism that are also hyperactive. And uh, there are, uh, when it comes to the dopamine transporter, mice has been generated, right? This is uh, uh, Dr. Blakely at uh, Florida Atlantic University. as an institute down there. And uh, there are papers that has been published uh, with impairment of this uh, mice um, with specific behavior. Some of this mutation has been also found in family uh, with autism. And one of them is the one that I described today. We didn't get to your cool tools. I was going to ask you about EPR spectroscopy, but don't worry, that's good. not. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to do a wrap-up question unless anybody else wants to say anything. It's usually mm -hmm. just like, what are you most excited about? I'm always excited about other things, so I'm fine with that. Okay, we'll just <laughs> sign off. <laughs> All right, thanks for joining us, Aurelio Gali. It's been a pleasure to be here. You're a fantastic institution. Thank you. Because you never tried to talk about.